This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition was just released, available for wherever books are sold. So get your copies today. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views for guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trade Affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We have a friend of the program, Jared Dillian, who is back. He's got a lot of interesting stuff he writes about on a daily basis. We're going to be talking to him about all his views of the world. But we're going to start, uh, as we always do, with the professor kicking us off. Uh, professor, has been a big week of earnings, maybe a little bit of economic data, but certainly markets reacting to earnings. Uh, how are you looking at things here? Right. And... Um, uh really a big rotation again uh, away from tech in general, Apple being the exception, um, and into the uh, what we would call the value stocks, the industrial stocks, Dow really outperforming uh, this week. Uh, uh, yeah, when, when the stalwarts got hit, all but Apple, Apple in fact did get hit for a few seconds right after uh, its announcement. The, the uh, uh, investors are so sensitive to any sign of a slowdown that even when they hear anything is uh, slowing down, they sell. Uh, but when you take a look at Apple, I mean, it's strong. And, uh, you know, today, I mean, uh, as we're speaking, it's up over 7% after uh, temporarily being down uh, right right after earnings. Uh, but that was very, very strong. But Amazon is down 10%. I mean, we all saw the devastation on Meta. Um, uh, uh, you know, is this a, is this the capitulation of, of, of everything that isn't really, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the big tech? Remember the fang that so drove the market for three or four years began with the letter F, which stood for Facebook, now Meta, uh, which has really been, uh, devastated, um, uh, in the market. I, I think this rotation will continue. I do think Apple is, is really, a franchise that is almost second to none. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I still think that that's a, that's a buy uh, today, even up 7% uh, uh, in the long run. The others have more uh, more problems, and they can't be capitalized at the ratios. Uh, what also is, is spurring good news uh, today, um, actually, is that uh, 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 inflation data match, expectations and now just matching is good uh, or even touch a below expectation employment coin uh, cost index a quarterly index uh, came in exactly a 1.2 percent the pc deflator came in as expected um the uh one-year inflation uh, number from the university of michigan actually ticked down one tenth of a percent from its uh, preliminary um so uh, uh the inflation numbers are not at least on, on, on today, not getting worse. I think that I think there's a growing feeling in the market that the inflation is over, whether the Fed wants to admit it or not. And I mean, all you have to do is look at pending home sales. Unbelievable. Year over year, down over 30 uh, percent, down 10.2 percent just for the month of September. Uh, and this, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, comes before pending home sales is an almost perfect uh, uh, two month lag indicator for actual home sales um, and uh, will affect housing starts. We, the devastation in the housing market, again, which enjoyed such a tremendous ride, is over. Um, I still uh, next week, of course, is uh, unbelievable in terms of filled with uh, with data Um uh, clearly, we get the, on, on the first of the month, we get the jolt data. Will it go down as much as it did before, which was a million openings? Uh, the expectation is actually almost a drop of about 400,000. We'll see about that. That's going to be 
uh, also important. The ISM numbers are going to come in also on November 1st. And then, of course, the all-important FOMC meeting. I do expect 75. The question will be the statement. Are they willing to look at the data? That's what the market is going to be expecting. Will they acknowledge that progress is made and, um, you know, further increases will depend on uh, how in, uh, how the data evolves. Uh, that is what the market is looking for. If they uh, don't get any such sign, I expect a sell-off on the FOMC. If they get such a sign, I expect a big rally on 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 uh, of the FOMC uh, on the FOMC news. Then, of course, on Friday we get the payrolls. Uh, expected only two hundred thousand uh, slowdown. Unemployment, 3.6%. I mean, these are going to be important numbers to see the slowdown. We are not really seeing it in jobless claims yet. But, uh, you know, there's increasing criticism of tech over hiring in the last cycle and whether actually the biggest uh, firings are actually going to come from Silicon Valley in the next month um, rather than uh, in the typical cyclical uh, companies. Professor, you, you commented after the last Fed press conference that the reporters weren't asking the right questions. Um, what are the, the two questions you would be, be asking, pal, if, you, if we got any reporters listening to us here? What are the, the few questions you would make sure they, they, they ask Powell next week? Well, I would definitely ask about the housing data and how that's lagged and whether the Fed recognizes that it doesn't represent what's going on on the ground in the housing market. I am sure that's going to be brought up at the meeting. I mean, I brought it up so many times in the press. We brought it up in the board interview last week. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be discussed. Will he acknowledge it? Um, um, that's the question. So it depends pretty much on his statement what uh, I, I would I would ask. If he says we see signs of slowing and uh, could, uh, you know, our, our further increases could be measured, then, you know, uh, the Fed has got it. Um, uh, uh, the market thinks the Fed is going to get it. Whether it is next week or in the December meeting, they're going to get it. They're rallying, I think, on, on that basis um, uh, uh, going forward. But certainly I would uh, ask them about that. I would also ask them, by the way, and this is a, a new development since our last week, the money supply M2 was reported last Tuesday. Uh, it fell uh, by a large amount uh, since March. So now I measured it. And in the data that I have, the monthly data going back to 1959, so we're talking about well over half a century, uh, uh, over 60 years, there has never been a six-month period where the money supply uh, has gone down uh, the way it has over the last six months. Uh, that. Uh, 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 again, I mean, uh, you know, Chairman Powell said that we don't believe in the money supply. Well, he should believe in the money supply because that's what's causing all of uh, this particular uh, inflation. But that is a sign of tremendous tightness. Dollar is coming off its highs. I think the same thing. The Fed is going to get it, not going to tighten quite as much as we saw uh, before. Uh, the, the big question, again, I think there's a 75 percent hike. The question will be in the statement and in the Q&A that follows uh, the statement. What hints are we are seeing progress? Uh, further increases will uh, you know, depend on the developments on the ground. That's what the market wants to hear. And some of the rally, I think, taking place today uh, is, is actually in anticipation of that. On the, also, I mean, again, looking at the stock market, earnings are generally looking good. Uh, there are warnings. A lot of it is in warnings for the fourth quarter. People are talking about that macro slowdown. That also has to weigh on the Fed. Um, I mean, we're going to get a lot of data. I mean, 75 is baked in now. We're going to see the statement. We're going to get a lot of data between now and the important December meeting where we're going to get a new dot plot where, you know, we're going to have, a, we're gonna have a, you know, an, uh, another uh, employment report and, a, and a more inflation reports uh Going forward, by the way, the case Shiller report again is showing uh, a big decline in housing prices. All this is fitting into the narrative that basically inflation has has been licked. It will flow through the pipeline. But the forces that were pushing inflation up 
which was, you know, uh, indiscriminate monetary policy are, are gone at the present time. Well, Professor, I, I know you're going to, to, to Europe next week, uh, London, I believe. Uh, so Correct. have a good good trip and uh, give us your report on what's happening in Europe when you come back. I will. Thank you. Thanks so much for starting the show. We're going to turn the conversation over to Jared Dillian, who is the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap, a, a daily market newsletter. I've been been writing for the last 14 years, it seems like. Uh, he also strategist Malden Economics, host of Be Smart podcast i see jared's background there on the be smart podcast and also uh, uh, an author of uh, of, of some books and enough writing a new book jared welcome back to behind the markets hey thanks for having me give us uh for people who are, are hearing you for the first time give our listeners a little bit more like on your your how you come came to the daily dirt nap what your back how you think about markets generally what and sort of what informs all of your your thinking yeah, I mean, I had a nine-year career on Wall Street. I spent the first two years on the options floor in San Francisco, and then I had seven years at Lehman Brothers. While I was at Lehman Brothers, I ran the ETF trading desk. Uh, and that you know, that informed a lot of my opinions on markets. While I was doing that, I actually had a pretty significant prop book um, that was pretty profitable. And while I was at Lehman, I started writing market commentary, and it turned out to be very in demand. So uh, I had a list with a few thousand people. And when the bankruptcy happened, I left the firm, started the newsletter in 2008. And uh, like you said, I've been doing it for 14 years. Yeah, I, I, you know, we get so much different research and commentaries. But I will say Jared's is one I try to read every morning. Um, he does, it, it is a very solid piece of research and uh, a few pages you get through it quickly and it's very good writing style very engaging um, so appreciate that Jared uh, all, all the great work there you heard the professor give his some of his high level views um, we talked uh, maybe you want to start off with the, with how you're looking at the world today what are the key key issues as, as you evaluate what's happening in, in markets well I mean it all comes down to the Fed and I think the Fed is absolutely going to pause rate hikes imminently. You know, we have the meeting next week, uh, Wednesday, November 2nd. Um, gosh. Uh, I think, you know, we've we've heard some chatter out of some Fed officials. Uh, Mary Daly in San Francisco, uh, president of the San Francisco Fed, she was really having a conniption about rates, uh, you know, saying that we must pause. So we know there's some dissension within the Fed, I For the first time, that, they were so, they were so uniform, saying that we had to hike. I mean, that yeah. is there any sign of that? Yeah, and I think that the bond market ultimately scared the Fed into pausing rates. I mean, we got tens. I think think tens got up to like four thirty seven or something like that. The UK bond market blew up. It this was, I think, this was the biggest drawdown in bonds in history. You know, I mean, I, I, I just I think we're talking about 20 or 25 percent in the bond market. Mortgage rates are now over 7 percent. And I think the Fed is looking at this and says, oh, you know, OK, we have to pause and evaluate the effects of these rate hikes that we've already done before we do any more. And what I expect to happen is I, you know, the, the economy lags the stock market by about six months. And I think stocks are going to start to rally on hopes of Fed easing. And I think you're going to see the economic data deteriorate even further. We have, uh, gosh, we have ISM next week where expectations are exactly 50. Uh, we have Chicago PMI. We have payrolls. We have the ADP number. I mean, next week is a big week for data. And I think what you're going to see happen is a lot of this data is going to start to come in very soft. Some of it already has. I mean, like the professor said, you know, the housing data has just been a horror show. So that's going to that's going to start to feed into the data. And, you know, I think from a trading standpoint, probably the easiest trade to put on this at this point would be a steepener in the yield curve. Because, you know, twos, which are at about 435, they're going to two year yields are going to start to drop pretty dramatically. So I think as you see two-year yields start to head towards 4%, that's going to be rocket fuel for stocks. I think we have a lot of upside in stocks. Very interesting. Um, you know, it, it's 
so far it, it daily is one good commentary on on uh on, on things changing like the, is the big three i guess brainerd made a few comments it's like you want to see powell recognize some of them we tried to get bullard to make some comments last week saying that he sees inflation coming down he, he there was nothing to me in bullard's comments that actually implied he got it that he actually thinks that we should be be slowing things down here well, what's interesting is that, you know, the, the guys who were the two biggest doves at the Fed, who, who were Bullard and Cash Carry, now they're two of the biggest hawks. And uh, I, I think that's interesting. Um, you know, uh, ultimately, I would like to see what Powell says about it. Brainerd has made some dovish comments, but there's, I think there's some momentum here to pausing rates. I do think they're going to hike 75 Next week, there is the market is pricing in about a 10 or 15 percent chance of a 50. Um, I don't think that is going to happen. If it does happen, that sure would be exciting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's going to be a pretty dovish directive. In terms of, um, you know, you, one of the things you, you do throughout your, your you give a lot of different ideas. The professor talked about what's been going on in in earnings this week and, and Meta. I know that's one of the things you've been talking about. Uh, Meta used to be this sort of like high multiple growth stock. It's now they're trying to trans, transition. Um, they're now arguably a value stock with very sort of d- diminished valuation fee ratios. Uh, people just don't like to spend. Um you want to give some comments to people on, on your views of what's happening in Meta now? Sure. Uh, I mean, Meta, actually, I think it is technically a value stock. And I think the P.E. is below that of Altria. I think it's actually cheaper than the tobacco stocks, if that says anything. Both so, sin stocks. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, Facebook was in a tough spot. You know, um, I would say Instagram probably accounts for a half to two thirds of their valuation at this point. I think the actual Facebook platform is not worth a lot. It's, uh, it's shrinking uh, very slowly, but it is shrinking. There's no more growth left in Facebook. And Zuckerberg was sort of faced with a situation where he had to pivot, and that's exactly what he did. He did exactly what a CEO is supposed to do, but nobody likes to pivot. And one of the reasons nobody likes to pivot is, is because you know we were talking about the metaverse in 2021 during the crypto boom and stuff like that and you know that was like the hot thing and now since we're in a bear market we have a revulsion for all things pertaining to crypto and what happened in 2021 like people people don't want to hear about the metaverse and the irony is is that this is the exact time that Zuckerberg should be making these investments and I almost think that Wall Street, you know, the analyst community looks looks at Meta and says, like, you know, you guys should just treat Facebook as a cash cow runoff business, which doesn't make any sense. So ultimately, I think Zuckerberg is doing the right thing. Um, and I, I mean, I, I the, the, the tweet that I made yesterday, you know, after the earnings, I said, look, like if you if you bought Meta here at a hundred dollars a share. I, and just didn't look at it for five years, I think you would be pretty happy. I think you would be pretty happy. Yeah, it, it is interesting that, that in, in today's environment, they, people are focused on margins, they're focused on spend, and, and, and any little, and, and sort of the, certainly the growth slowdown you're seeing in, in big tech, do you, is the reaction to other earnings from so the, the Amazons and, and Microsoft this week, and as you, as you look at what's happening in, in the other big tech, do you think the their valuations have come down enough or do you think there could be more risk to those big big tech stocks right now? I think there could be some more risk to Amazon. Um I didn't I didn't dig into the results really hard, but I did see some of the headlines. I mean, I think it was only a matter of time until the cloud business started to suffer, uh until you had an oversupply of cloud storage and prices started to come down. Uh, Amazon, you know, that's been that's really been the big profit center for Amazon over the last three or four years. And, you know, a slowdown there was inevitable. Um, And also, the other thing you have to remember about Amazon, Amazon is kind of like Walmart. You know, it's the old it's the ultimate economically sensitive stock. It's very sensitive to patterns in consumer spending. We're in a recession. People are spending less. Of course, it's going to get hit. And I think that's probably going to continue for another year. So I do think Amazon has some downside. 
Um, we're, we're talking with Jared Dillian, who is the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, you guys, you publish so many different things beyond the Daily Dirt Nap. Do you want to highlight for people a few other places they can find some of your works? I might allude to some of the references you made in a few of these other places. Sure. So, um, you know, I'm also an investment strategist at Malden Economics. I publish three newsletters there. One of them is free, the 10th Man newsletter. You can sign up for the 10th Man newsletter for free. I also have two um, stock picking services there. One is called Street Freak. The other is called Jared Dillian Strategic Portfolio, which is an ETF-only portfolio with very long holding periods. Uh, and that's actually been doing very well. Uh, I was a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion for five and a half years. I actually just stopped about a month ago. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I have, a, I have a whole library of content up on Bloomberg if you wanted to look for me there. Um, I, had, uh, I, had a, I have a sub stack that I've been running for about a year where I've been publishing essays on non-financial topics, just about life and stuff. And that's, that's called We're Going to Get Those Bastards. And actually, uh, all the essays I've published over the course of the year, I'm turning into an anthology, and I'm publishing it in June of 2023. Very nice. So a very busy author here. A lot of, uh, a lot of interesting work. Um, in terms of your other big, big views of what's happening in, in the world today, um, so certainly Europe has been a, an area of focus. I know you've been talking about what's been going on in the currency markets and then sort of the, the, the asset markets. Let's talk a little bit about how you view that, uh, the UK and, and, and other, t- other topics related. Yeah. I mean, I think Europe, Europe and emerging markets, I think are the biggest opportunities here, especially Europe. Uh, and what we've had with Europe is we've had 15 years of outperformance of the U S versus Europe. Valuations have expanded in the U S valuations have contracted in Europe. They've contracted in Europe to the point where, I mean, you're talking about good stocks, big cap stocks that are trading in single digit PEs with six, seven, maybe 10% dividend yields. They're the the cheapest stocks in the world. And it's, you know, Europe isn't growing like the U.S., but, you know, the way I look at this, sometimes I think about this, like, in 1982, when stocks bottomed, I was eight years old, so I wasn't really looking at the stock market. But sometimes I wonder, you know, if I was 30 years old in 1982 and I saw the valuations on U.S. stocks, I saw that I call this the 6-6 zone, where you have a stock that's a 6 PE and a 6% dividend yield. And that's basically where the S&P 500 was. And I think to myself, I'm like, would I have the presence of mind? Would I have the perspective to buy stocks with those valuations in that environment in the middle of a bear market? I hope that I would. And the funny thing is, is that Europe today is where the U.S. was in 1982. It has those valuations. It's in the 6-6 zone. And people do not have the presence of mind. They do not have the perspective. And, you know, they're saying the types of things that people said in 1982, like it's the death of equities, like these stocks will never rally. And those are the types of things you're hearing. So I think I think it's I think it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, what what, what's interesting also about the overlaps and parallels of the two environments is back then you say, like, think about the late 70s, early 80s, 1980. It, 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 just how different the world was. The, the S and P got to around thirty percent energy stocks because oil was was booming uh, going nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. Oil peaked around that nineteen eighty time period, but you had all these energy problems stoking the inflationary problems. And Europe, in particular, has all these issues with energy and commodity inflation. Obviously, the war is is very dynamic, creating all this negative sentiment. Do you want any any comments on that? And now, how low energy is in the general market? It got down to like two and a half percent in the S and P. How different, uh, you know, forty years later is. But uh, any comments on on the energy market dynamics for Europe as a challenge? Well, I mean, just to begin, I don't I don't think that energy is going to go back to being thirty percent of the S and P. I Obviously. don't think that's going to happen. Um, I mean, I th- I think if it go- if it went back to eight or ten percent of the S and P, I think that would be a big deal. Um, you know, you you look at Europe and number one, the war and number two, the energy challenges. And that's kind of, 
that's scary stuff, right? It's very, it's, it's very scary. Like, like, you know, you say to yourself, how can I invest in Europe in the middle of a war when Germany is a two hour flight from Ukraine? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the neighborhood. It's very close by, you know, it's an existential threat. And this was back, I want to say around 2015 or so. I don't remember the exact date, but I was getting very bullish on Mexico and at the time, if you remember Mexico in the mid-2010s, what is it that people were talking about with Mexico? They were talking about the cartels. They were talking about the violence. They were talking about the gang killings. I mean, it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It was, it was this constant chatter. And I came up with this concept called the tank trade. And I said, you want to invest in places where you would only go if you were in a tank. And that's, you know, and that's basically you're investing in times of stress, you're investing in times of turbulence, you're investing when it's really scary. And those really are where the, the great opportunities are. You know, the energy issues in Europe, I think, will pass. Uh, natural gas prices have already come down. Um, I think that'll resolve over time. I'm not a geopolitical analyst. I have no idea when the war is going to end, but I can tell you when it does, when it does, that's going to be a big boost for stocks in Europe. Yeah, it's it's it. it there, there are some headlines that you actually got negative prices of gas in Europe after after that sort of Dutch price went up to like three hundred. Um, I'm not going to be able to get the units right there, but it went up to three hundred. And and because they had they're having the same storage issues we had in the pandemic, now they have so much gas that they don't know how to store it. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, now, you one of the things you talk about as part of your framework, you you often talk about sort of gauging sentiment, um, and and how do you gauge sentiment? And this is this is one of those topics of where energy sentiment came to a certain place. You want to sort of talk through your framework of how you try to gauge the what is the market thinking on all these issues, uh, and 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 what that was saying to you about natural gas, oil, those those types of things. Uh, can you say that again? What do you mean by that? You, you talk a lot about how you're, you uniquely try to monitor sentiment of, of the market. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what I do in my newsletter. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, it's sort of my differentiating factor. Um, I'm not a fundamental analyst at all. I, and, and honestly, I mean, this, you know, might be heresy for a lot of people, but I don't pay any attention to fundamentals. I, I don't even know when it's earnings season unless you tell me. Like, I just have no idea. Um, you know, I care, I care how people feel about stocks. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, just by using sentiment, you can identify large, you know, big important turning points in, you know, the broad market or asset classes or individual commodities. And, you know, just in the last, I would say in the last six months, you know, you've been able to identify big tops in energy and natural gas and uranium, and you were able to identify a big bottom in stocks back in June. And you say, well, who cares about the bottom in stocks back in June? I mean, we're, you know, we're pretty much where we were back in June. Well, you had a 17% rally. You know, I mean, that's, that's investable. Like you can, you know, you can trade off of that. Like if you, if you have the ability to predict a 17% rally in the S and P that's significant. So this is what I spend my time doing. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably too much time on Twitter, but Twitter is hands down the biggest source of sentiment information that you can possibly get. Um, and you can see when people get too bullish on something. You can see when people get too bearish on something. Um, you know, we were talking about Meta earlier. I mean, I think I think we've hit a sentiment low in Meta. I think people are people have given up on it. So, very interesting. Well, since you just mentioned Twitter, we got the news of the day: is Elon buying Twitter? Any sense of how you think Elon's going to shape it? Do you, do you view it as a any any interesting comments on on Elon getting involved? Uh, I view it as a positive. You know, I, there's a couple things. First of all, like, you know, I, I do think he has an altruistic motive. You know, he's made some comments about how he wants Twitter to be the town square for public discourse, and he wants he wants to promote free speech. But he's also he's motivated by money, and you know, I think he has the ability to turn it around and make it a better platform for people to use. 
I mean, if he's buying it for forty billion, I think he could IPO it for two hundred billion in three years. I think it could be one of his best investments. So that's interesting because the sentiment is uh, you have sort of the, the lead tech analyst saying this may be the most overvalued uh, tech acquisition in in history at at, at I think forty four billion, forty billion, something like that. Um, so that's interesting that that you're you could take the counter narrative that he actually might be buying a very useful asset and. Uh, an IPO at uh, down the road. Very interesting worldview. We're going to take a very short break. We're talking with Jared Dillian, who is the author of the Daily Dirt Nap, uh, strategist from Alden Economics, host of the Be, Be Smart podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Jared, uh, we were just talking about sentiment uh, at the beginning, at the end of the, the program, and, and how you gauge sentiment. I know one of the other areas you feel like sentiment was quite stretched on is the dollar. Uh, we talked a little bit about the UK and some emerging markets is one of your views of the 6.6. Six. I love the idea of this 6 PE, 6 you know, that's where you want to go. Going to, but tell us on the sentiment on the dollar. Um, what has you thinking things are overextended? Um, what, what are the factors? Well, I was a little bit early. You know, I, 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 I said I, I called a top in the dollar a couple of months ago, and I was a little bit early. There was one more leg up, but I, th- I do think we've reached it now. Um, really it comes down, it it comes down to rates. It comes down to rates. Um, and it comes down to the fed. I mean, if the fed pauses, rates will come down, the dollar will get weaker, risk will rally, commodities will do well. I mean, that's really, it, it all, it really all comes down to the meeting on Wednesday. Um, but if you think the dollar is going to depreciate, then Europe and emerging markets, are just unbelievable values. I mean, you're getting you're getting stuff in the six six zone. You're getting these single digit PEs, and then maybe we get a ten percent sell off in the dollar. I mean, first of all, nominally you're going to have a ten percent increase in those assets, but it's the effect is going to be much more than that. Um, I I really I think it's the best opportunity out there right now. Like if I you know, if I was putting aside 10-year money, if I had money that I was investing on a 10-year basis, I would have pretty much just Europe and EM and nothing else. Is there a particular country in EM, or is it just the sort of broad EM? I mean, we have uh, a, a, a sell-off. There's sort of very different exposure if you look at somebody like Brazil, which is in that sort of high-dividend country versus a country like China, where you have a lot of the China tech stocks. They came under a lot of pressure recently. Is it just the broad basket? How, how are you thinking about EM there? Well, I would say you would have to exclude China. Um, I think China is idiosyncratic, and you know, based on what's happening politically there, I think you would have to avoid it. Um, I think Brazil is the biggest opportunity, regardless of what happens with the election. Um, I mean, even Lula is saying that he's going to promote fiscal responsibility. So I don't really think there's too many bad outcomes. I think. Bolsonaro is probably a better outcome for markets, but I think there's really no bad outcomes. And actually, Brazil is where is where you have the cheapest stocks. I mean, you have, you know, Petrobras, which I think, you know, off the top of my head has a 20 percent dividend yield or something like that. You have incredibly cheap stocks. So, um, yeah, I would probably focus my efforts on that. Yeah, the Brazil, it's one of the things we do, an, an annual rebalance of some of our high dividend indexes this year. And, and yeah, exactly like you're saying, it, it, it gets into even higher than the 6-6 zone on some of these places. And, and Brazil is sort of leading the charge on all those. You, you say, are these, can, these, can they sustain these yields on somebody like Petrobras? But when you look at their, their how much earnings have increased because of oil prices, um, it seems to be pretty well covered. But it, it's, it's, it's dividend yields that you're that look quote unquote risky because because uh they're just so high um so very interesting um now one of the things that you do a lot of writing on as well um and we've something you know I've talked about you you talked about the awesome portfolio uh and it's sort of a, a way of collecting assets together you just mentioned if you know if you had a 10 year time horizon you would think about Europe and EM, but talk about this this awesome portfolio. How you think about the long term asset allocation in it, and then I might drill into a few of the ideas in there as well. Well, so the awesome portfolio is something I invented back. I want to say 2018 or 2019. Um, I was doing some work on it. I was running some back tests, 
And what I found was that a portfolio that has stocks, bonds, gold, cash, and real estate in equal proportions, 20% proportions, just has some unbelievable characteristics. Okay. So just some statistics. If you have, you have the awesome portfolio and it's 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% gas, 20% gold, 20% real estate. Since 1971, this portfolio has returned 8.4% a year, which is just a little bit less than 100% equities. And it did so with half the volatility of an 80-20 portfolio, almost no volatility. And that's because of the correlations between asset classes. Now, now up until this year, the previous worst drawdown in the awesome portfolio was 2008, where you had a drawdown of 9.2%. This year, the awesome portfolio has had a drawdown of 10.5%. Uh, but even still, like that's pretty good in the context of the overall market. I mean, I think if you were down 10.5% this year, you would probably be pretty happy. And keep in mind, you know, that 8.4% return over 50 years that was accomplished even having 20% cash in the portfolio. You know, and the, pur the purpose of the cash is to dampen volatility. So it's just, it, it, it's an amazing product. And, and now you, for a while, you had zero return on cash. You're getting now to 4% returns in cash, finally yeah. getting, getting something back there as the Fed has been hiking rates and, and helping there. Um, this is the first year that stocks and bonds aren't core, you know, our bonds are not hedging stocks like the way they used to. Do you have any view on, will they become a better hedge looking forward? You know, that's a good question. I've actually been thinking about that. I, I, I've been sort of wondering if stocks and bonds would return to their old relationship. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. So I can't even answer it. You know, it's one of the things that we, we actually write about a little bit in the sixth edition of Stocks for Long Run that, that just came out. You know, Siegel's talked about things he thinks are going to keep rates lower over the long term, like demographics, productivity, economic growth. But one of them, there was the Rich Clarita from the Fed. Um, he was a former PIMCO guy. He had cited a paper saying the changing correlation of stocks and bonds contribute could be if you did some of the modeling could have contributed as much as 300 basis points fall in yields. Um, because of you know they used to be very positively correlated. Then in the eighties, from from the seventies and eighties, in the nineties, two thousands, they became negatively correlated. And that shifting correlation as a hedge asset, you're willing to pay more for the hedge asset. You could take a lower real return. Um, so this is one of the things we're talking about a lot. Like if this correlation, if people remember that bonds went down, didn't hedge stocks. You know maybe rates stay a little bit higher for a little bit longer. It's going to be a, a topic we keep keep talking about here. Yeah, and the other thing about the awesome portfolio in, in this, you know, this year in particular, 2022, is that gold didn't really work either. Yes, you know, I mean, he, here's the thing: this is why 2022 has been such a terrible year. And a lot of people look at stocks in 2022 and they say, "Well, they're down 20 percent," and it's, you know, we ha they were down 57 percent in the financial crisis and 46 percent in 1974. And they look at all these big bear markets and they say, well, 2022 really hasn't been that bad, but it has been bad. And one of the reasons it's been bad is because there's been no place to hide. Like back in 2008, if you were in bonds or you were in gold, you were actually pretty happy. You were doing well if you were diversified. Now, being in bonds or gold or anything hasn't helped. The only cash. place to be has been in cash. And that's why you see you. I, I like to say we have a bubble in cash. When I talk to financial advisors, all they tell me is that th they spend a hundred percent of their time buying T bills and two year notes for their clients. That's all people are trading nowadays. Well, twenty percent of an allocation to gold is obviously a, a large allocation. Um, compared to where people are today, um, gold is getting a lot of hate for people say about gold is a good inflation hedge. We have record high inflation. Where is this? You know, why is this not translating to gold? Uh, I know some of your views um, on gold. But share with our audience. What, it, why is gold not worked as the ultimate inflation hedge this year? Uh, I... I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, gold, look... 
What I well, first of all, let me talk about the awesome portfolio a bit. So when I was yeah. first putting together the awesome portfolio, instead of the gold allocation, I wanted to have a twenty percent allocation to commodities, a basket of commodities, and that works reasonably well. But the problem with having a basket of commodities is it's harder to implement, and you have more carry costs. Okay. So there are some there's some ETFs or ETNs that give you exposure to a basket of commodities, but like I said, there's there the, the carry costs are significant. So I said for simplicity, I mean a basket of commodities is reasonably well correlated with gold. So I said let's just go with gold. But you could actually you know you can interpret that more broadly and include other commodities in that 20% allocation. It, it's that that's a very interesting one because I, I I think historically a lot of people would say um, that gold does have sort of different defensive properties versus commodities that maybe commodities are more risk on growth oriented. Um, I do think commodities now do have they're hedging a different risk. They are hedging more of the inflation risk, and and generally commodities have done. They, they, you could say they, the, the broader commodity basket has actually done well this year. Carries also changed. I don't know how much you've studied the contango backwardation where, you know, the last two decades it would have cost you seven, eight percent a year with that carry cost in the futures. And, and when we're talking, uh, nerd speak here on the futures market, but the futures market, uh, where the futures prices are much higher than the short term prices. So it costs you a lot to roll the futures. That became more of, of a flat to positive. I mean, the, the, the far out oil contracts are, are in, in much steeper backwardation today where you're actually getting paid to hedge stuff now. Um, if that changes, I don't know. We'll see how permanent these changes are or, or how yeah, long they're I, I don't think it's permanent at all. I mean, like if you look, if you look at term structures of volatility, for example, like the term structure of volatility is only in backwardation in very short periods of time, and it doesn't last very long. And I think that's true of commodities, too. I mean, it's persisted over the last year, this backwardation, but I don't think it's going to persist in the future. I think, I think this is an anomaly. I remember studying the CFA textbooks when we had to take this, uh, probably around the 08, 09, when commodities were going crazy. And um, they they taught in there that that, that they, there was a natural backwardation to oil, and that one of the returns to commodities was you got you got interest, you got the spot move, you got this carry, and it's like, well, am I supposed to answer questions that reality that it's now you know in, in very steep contango? Um, but they did actually used to teach that 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 things had some backwardation to it. I mean, are we just shaped by the last two decades that it hasn't been that maybe maybe it could come back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking with Jared Dealing, who is the editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. He's talking about the awesome portfolio. Um, in in terms of gold, I would come back to that just for a moment. It, it, is is my my thesis is that it's been really the strong dollar. It's been the rising rates, um, and so that's all come back to the Fed decision once again. But it, it, do you see it any differently on what's 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 shaping gold? Is and because you became a little bit more bullish on gold as a as a bigger opportunity today generally what what's the the catalyst for gold being being more bullish i mean well first of all the fed the fed's going to pause as we discussed um you know gold is a lot of people argue about whether gold is an inflation hedge okay and it is not an inflation hedge in the micro term. It's not an inflation hedge in the short term or the medium term, but I think in the long term it is like on a 10-year basis, I think gold is an inflation hedge. I mean, if you go back and look at a, cho- a chart of gold uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, really, like, throughout the 70s, you know, there was a lot of inflation through the 70s, but gold was a pretty terrible inflation hedge up until 1979. Um, and, you know, t- you have these periods of time where it works and where it doesn't work. But I think, you know, if, if we're going to have above trend inflation, 4% or higher for the next 10 years, I think gold is absolutely going to outperform. Very good. Uh, and, and, and in terms of the, the awesome portfolio, the other key thing you talk a little bit about is real estate. Anything's on real estate today, real estate versus history. Is, is any sense in that? Well, the one thing I'll say about real estate is that you want to own real estate in an inflationary environment for a whole bunch of reasons. 
you know, for, you know, for the income or for capital appreciation, like it really makes a lot of sense to own real estate. Um, I know you have a, a colleague at Wisdom Tree who is very bearish on real estate, and I see him posting on Twitter all the time. I violently disagree with his view. I like him a lot personally, but I totally disagree with him. I think that we are having uh, a, sh- a short-term correction in real estate that is fairly sharp. Um, but I think in the context of you know 10-plus years of inflation that we're going to have, real estate is actually going to be an asset class that is going to do well. So if you get 10-year notes from 437 down to 3-plus percent, I mean, I think a lot of the pressure off the mortgage market is going to come off, and this little mini crash that we're having is going to resolve itself. I really think everything's going to be fine. Yeah, this is uh, Jared talking about Jeff Winnegar. He's actually one of my buddies growing up from – from from Boca Raton, Florida, like we, uh, I, I've known Jeff for thirty years probably. Um, so he he did have a thread on housing that went pretty pretty viral, and uh, doom doom stuff goes pretty pretty far on Twitter more than than things are going to be fine, right, Jared? Like if you were to come back and say, "Oh, housing's going to be fine," that wouldn't go anywhere. Um, but the <laughs> and 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 I tell him like. You know, I it it is so mu- so much mortgage related today. So it, it makes sense. I mean, housing prices were up forty percent from the pandemic, and you had these bidding wars, and things did get a little crazy um, when you saw people. I mean, I, I, locally we would see people bidding without seeing the house. There's all sorts of no contingency things. It did seem like a bit of a buying frenzy, um, and so it should. You would expect it to cool off a little bit with seven percent mortgage rates, but the question is, how long do things stay now? And I've been saying to my friends, saying if you have an opportunity to buy in the next six twelve months and, and things have cooled off, it's probably a great time to buy because you'll be able to finance lower. Um, there's no question rates are going back lower; it's just a matter of, of when and, and how you know how soon. Um, it sounds like you're you view that demographic story as as another key agreement on on. On housing well part of it is also you know I live in a part of the country that is getting uh, a lot of population inflows so I don't we don't really get bear markets in real estate here like there's there's a constant inflow of people so I, I do think I probably have some bias because things are pretty good around here um, it has slowed down a bit but you know there, you know, the appraisers have work, the inspectors have have work. You know, it hasn't come to a complete standstill. So, yeah, that's that's from living in Myrtle Beach. That's fair. Um, in terms of some of the other stuff that you're focused on day to day, any other places of the markets you want to highlight? Things that uh, you think you people should know about of what you're focused on, what you do day to day. Uh I don't know. I think it's probably worth just a, a, a minute or two on crypto. Um, you know, I, I think I think crypto is is you know from a sentiment standpoint, it can't get any worse. Um, I, I think that you know in, in situations like these, there's you have to have a period of neglect uh, before the asset class can rally again, and that's kind of where we are. We're in a period of neglect. Some people have said that the volatility of Bitcoin is actually lower than the S&P right now, which is kind of interesting. So we're in that period of neglect. How long that has to last before it goes up again? Um, a year, three years, five years, who knows? But um, I definitely do not think that crypto is over. The, the sentiment pulse on that is interesting because it, it's um... – some of the the people I followed on Twitter, um, you got Cuppy, the 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 hedge fund guy, who talked about you know he he's uh, he looked at it as you could get sort of the the pause, the play of the pause without the earnings statement risk. So like you know Amazon going through earnings season disappoints. <laughs> Bitcoin doesn't have an earnings season, but it doesn't have cash flow, so it's a very different dynamic. So it's another way to play some of what's going on in the Fed. As you think about crypto um, in portfolios, like what would, where do you think it competes with in allocations? Are there a group of crypto people who are just hodlers and who are not doing anything else in equities and, and bonds and, and sort of the traditional asset classes? How, how do you think people should think about crypto? Well, it definitely competes with gold, right? And you, you know, if you go back to 2021, people were like, well, you know, gold is, 
is a boomer asset. It doesn't work. It's stupid. You know, Bitcoin's at 69,000. And, you know, in the, in the down trade, you know, Bitcoin is down 70% and gold is actually held up pretty well. You know, so I think, I think there is sort of some uh, cross-pollination between gold and Bitcoin. Uh, it also competes with stocks. You know, it competes with all risk assets. Yeah, the, over for it, it, you've definitely seen people talk about that correlation changing, um, and and it'll be last this this week in, in particular. I think it had a, a standout relative to some of the other tech oriented things. So it, it is interesting to, to watch that shifting there. And I do think Bitcoin versus Ether, you sort of get you'll see divergences within cryptos over time that they should act differently in case for ether very different than the case for bitcoin which does really go more for gold and ether more for like a tech platform um yeah in 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 terms of the other stuff you're you uh sort of personal level you were just in boston doing some dj work you want to give a shout to the stuff you do outside of following the markets every day yeah so you know i've been a dj since 2008 uh i just played at the stansbury conference at the encore in boston uh, I have a local gig here next weekend, and then I'm playing uh, at the Cayman Islands at a Real Vision event. Um, so those are my gigs coming up. And then I have, uh, after that, I have a party in New York on March 10th, uh, which is going to be massive. So that's going to be a really good one. So. Yeah, so you, you can see Jared's multi multicultural interests here. You got uh, He's got all sorts of different publishing channels, the books, the podcast. The DJ, what, what, what's the DJ handle people can find you at? Yeah, so uh, my DJ name is Stochastic, and you can find me at djstochastic.com. And if you want to listen to my music, uh, I'm on SoundCloud slash DJ Stochastic. I have hundreds of hours of music up there. Well, we've been talking here with Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap. Keep, find him on Twitter, same handle. Uh, again, I, I think his daily newsletter is one of those must-reads every morning. Uh, I think he does a lot of really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets, Jared. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, on the board. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week as well. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.